Hello, everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with former senior officers from the U.S. intelligence community. And today, I have a real trendsetter. Her name is Carol Raleigh Flynn. She is the president of the Foreign Policy Research Institute based in uh, Philadelphia. It's a highly regarded nonprofit. She is a 30-year veteran from the CIA, held a number of senior executive positions at headquarters, and was chief of several major stations uh, overseas in Southeast Asia and Latin America. She's had a number of teaching positions. She's an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. She has a bachelor's degree from Wellesley and a master's degree in cybersecurity from UMUC. Raleigh, welcome to AFIO Now. Thanks very much, Jim. Appreciate being invited. Raleigh, how did you get started with CIA? <laughs> well, I have to admit it wasn't part of a grand plan. I was uh, an English major at Wellesley, and I always had wanderlust. You know, I, I'm probably the only person in history who has an act of rebellion went to, and I'm Northern Californian, went to Wellesley rather than Berkeley because I thought that was seeing the world. And so, uh, and I'd never been east of Reno at that point. So I've always had a bit of wanderlust. But after Wellesley, English major, I ended up in book publishing. So I spent about five years in uh, in New York, just shy of that, at Doubleday and Simon and & Schuster and ended up as an editor. And that was when I saw an ad in the New York Times on the op-ed page back where Mobile Oil and Exxon used to uh, advertise, big corner, corner advertising space. And there was an ad from the CIA and it said, do you like adventure? Would you like to serve your country? And would you like to see the world? And I just thought, well, yeah, <laughs> that all sounds really great. So I sent a cover letter and a resume as instructed to this name and PO box in Washington. And of course, later learned that the name was no such person. So, you know, I had my first interview in New York and uh, New York City in a, in a hotel room, of course. And the gentleman who interviewed me before before I came to the interview, they asked me to asked us to get and read, if possible, The Craft of Intelligence by Alan Dulles. So I searched all the libraries and the bookstores, of course, and this was pre-Amazon. So there was no getting that book, except that I worked in book publishing. So I called a bookseller up in Connecticut and uh, and well, I called called many booksellers, but found one in Connecticut that was able to send me that book for about I, it was expensive. It was like $27, which in, you know, 1981 or 80, I can't remember. I guess it must have been 81, was expensive. But I got it. I read it. And years later, I had the occasion to read my personnel file. And right in the front was this interview uh, of, you know, the write-up of the interview. And uh, the person who wrote it said, uh, said, in two days of interviews in New York, Raleigh was the only one who managed to get the book and Miracle of Miracles had read it and could discuss it. And he said, I think this bodes well for a career in the DO. So that was how I came. And my only real goal when I joined, because in those days there was no internet and there weren't that many books about it. And so I, you know, my only real goal when I joined was to learn French. I wanted to serve somewhere where they spoke French and, and I wanted to learn to speak French. 
And of course, I never served in a French speaking post and never learned French. But, you know, and I and I sort of said, you know, I was living in New York City. It was sort of a very liberal anti-CIA kind of place if you were, you know, 26 years old, which would, which was what I was. So I sort of said, mm, I'll give this five years. And of course, once I got in, I realized, you know, what a, what a terrific place the CIA is and what terrific people. And, you know, I was at Simon & Schuster and, and in the book publishing industry, I worked with a lot of smart, really creative people. And when I got to the CIA and got to the DO, I realized I'm working here with a lot of really smart, really creative people. But I'm also working with really ethical people, the kind of people if you're on a sinking boat, you'd want as your as your boatmates. And so CIA not only had a great mission, but it was just really interesting. And there was always that lure of the next assignment. You know, if things were going bad, you could say, well, it's really bad here, but I've got this possibility of this next job. So I kind of kept you going. So that's how I came to the CIA, totally on a lark, a total lark, and uh, end up staying for just shy of 30 years. But anyway, so that's that's how I got there. Raleigh, you were an example of an early, very successful senior female overseas operations officer. What was that like uh, when you joined and how did it evolve over the years? Uh, well, it changed a lot. When I came in, there were only a handful of us. And I do remember uh, in one of my early posts, my first post, in fact, um, I, uh, <laughs> I I was going to a, a source meeting and, um, and, you know, sort of doing a long walking, you know, uh, preamble to, to having that meeting to sort of clean myself off and see if I could spot some surveillance. And... Um, Partway into my walk around this African city, and, and I was had myself, you know, wearing a scarf, so I wasn't quite so obviously, you know, uh, an American. And uh, two young young fellows on a motorbike started following me, and but they they were sort of uh, laughing and saying, "Hey, hey, 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 hey! You want to go to the movies with me? You want to get coffee with me?" I couldn't shake them. They could clearly tell I was a Westerner and, and maybe there was a little blonde hair peeking out from my scarf. And so they followed me, you know, all around. And I finally had to say, I can't go to this meeting. I can't bring these guys to my meeting. And so the next morning I had uh, a, a sort of a gruff chief of station and who, who I like a great deal and who is a friend, but he, he was sort of gruff. And when I went in his office to explain what had happened and how I had to go to the variant or, you know, the next the next opportunity to meet my source, as I was walking out of the office, I heard him grumble. Women case officers. <laughs> you know? and so, um, so I don't think he was thrilled that he had a woman working for him, but he ultimately turned out to be a great boss. There were some drawbacks to having a woman and that I stood out. Uh, there were also some advantages. I got meetings that the guys didn't get because I wasn't threatening. And, you know, you can sit two women on a park bench or in a parked car and they can sit there for hours doing surveillance and no one will think anything about it. You put two guys in a car or sitting for hours, uh, 
you know, it, it becomes suspicious. So I think there were some opportunities. And certainly I did see a change. Uh, there were, by the time I left, women were in positions of, of, you know, executive positions. And there were more in the field than when I started. And, and I think there was a growing awareness that women can do this job too. You know, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And, and I think that goes for diversity at the CIA, too. It, it wasn't the world's most diverse place when I joined. And when I left, there was certainly an appreciation of the value of people who can blend in in places around the world and can speak a variety of languages and, and play other nationalities if need be. And so I think the CIA became a much more diverse place. And, uh, and certainly there was official recognition of the value of, of, of having a more diverse workforce. And, um, and, and there was a point about midway through my career, I think when I got to be about a GS 13 or 14, when uh, this probably isn't a popular thing to say, but I think I was discriminated for because they would want to have, you know, an example of a woman who'd actually recruited people overseas and had done that job. And so, you know, I seemed to get put on some panels and, and like if they wanted a group of case officers to go up to talk, talk to the DDO, the DDO, um, you know, I somehow got picked in that lot uh, more than maybe I might have if I hadn't been female because I, there was we still weren't that many of us. So um, but certainly I saw a lot of change and, and, and an appreciation that women can do the job, too. They, they might do it differently in some cases just because, you know, we are at the mercy of the security services that's, you know, follow us and monitor what we do and some of the hostile intelligence services. But. But certainly, I think uh, there was an appreciation that women can do the job, too. Raleigh, over your 30-year career, how did you see the mission change? And what do you see as um, possible possibilities for the mission in the future? Well, I certainly saw the mission change a lot. I mean, I started my career, uh, my first two assignments were in Africa. And this was the, the 80s height of the Cold War. And um, the... The um, Africa, African continent certainly played an important role in, in the Cold War, where a lot of the, the African countries were sort of divided into who, who, who did they side with, the Soviets and the Warsaw Pact, or NATO and the United States of America, and as well as in terms of our, our DO activities, uh, we used the real estate of places uh, like countries in Africa, because it was a place where you could actually get relatively easy access to Soviets and to the Warsaw Pact uh, diplomats and uh, official personnel. And so um, it, it was sort of a, a hunting ground for us. Uh, you know, in some of the places I served, there was only one grocery store, two grocery stores, and everybody had to shop there. So, you know, you'd see your your KGB <laughs> counterpart in this in the cereal aisle. Um, and in fact, I remember one sort of funny incident. And uh, I remember um, we we got this uh, cable out, you know, informing us that Checka Day was was coming up. And Checka Day, if I recall correctly, I want to say is in 
December. I may have gotten that wrong. But um, and I was in the Southern Hemisphere, so December wasn't what we think of as December. It was, it was summer. But they told us that a lot of uh, residenturas uh, celebrate Cheka Day because that was the founding of the you know security services, foreign security services, and uh, be on the lookout for you know, opportunities for check a deck. I'm not sure what that meant, but I was in the grocery store in this African count, uh, um, capital, the, uh, <laughs> one of two grocery stores and who do I see, but one of the KGB guys in there and what's he carrying? He's, he's got, he's only got one thing in his shopping cart and it's a little toy gun. And I'm thinking, I bet she's taken that to his check-a-day celebration as some kind of a spoof gift. So he, we knew each other, and I said, well, hello. <laughs> and, and I don't think he really wanted to see me at that point with his little toy gun. And, his, uh, and I, I didn't mention check-a-day, but I just said, that's an in- interesting selection of <laughs> groceries you're buying. <laughs> so, so anyway, but in a, a huge... European or Asian capital, it wouldn't necessarily be as easy to have casual encounters with, you know, our uh, our uh, Soviet and Bloc counterparts. And so it, it was sort of a, a lucrative hunting ground. And so that that made uh, Africa and some of the other places in the world. Uh, it was, as I say, the, the height of the Cold War. When the Cold War ended and we can say, did it ever really end? That certainly, that question is certainly open right now. You know, we went to the 90s, which was the peace dividend, uh, the post-Cold War peace dividend, where some of some of our colleagues were even talking about, you know, cozying up and treating the Russians like they were best buds at that point. But it had, of course, an impact on our budgets in the 90s. And uh, CIA took some blows during that period. We uh, we had, of course, Aldrich Ames, and uh, and you know I was in the DDO's office in the year following the uh, as one of the special assistants. I think they now call them executive assistants, but you know we were really getting beat up because of Ames, and some would say we should have by by the Hill, by the media, and. There were, our budgets got smaller. There was talk, and I think there's some downsizing of the agency, and um, as well as voices on the Hill, such as Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who twice introduced bills suggesting that this, the CIA be dismantled and its parts being divided up between other agencies, uh, most prominently the, the State Department and the military. And so I, I think collectively, it's my impression, my impression alone, but I think morale was low in the 90s. And, you know, it was not the way I felt when I was in Africa in the 80s. And I also did one tour in Southeast Asia during the 80s. And we were all, you know, we, we, were, we were very motivated, I think, by the Cold War. Of course, that all came to a crashing end after 9-11 when the CIA and the rest of the intelligence community did that pivot to uh, to counterterrorism. And I was in Latin America at the time, and we were very much focused on, of course, hard targets as always, but also on counter narcotics. 
And we sort of felt like stepchildren after 9-11 because that was clearly the priority. And uh, some of the folks in the station where I was did get tapped to go to the war zones. I volunteered to go to, you know, take me out. But I was chief of station. And so they took my deputy instead uh, for six months. I think he was deployed to one of the war zones. You know, some would say, you know, we, we pivoted too far. We, we lost, lost sight of our true mission. And I think certainly there was an impact on tradecraft because there were there was, I think, probably at least a decade where almost all first tour officers had to do their first assignment in one of the war zones. And I don't want to betray any tradecraft secrets, but but war zone tradecraft is not the same as what you practice if you're in a, in a area where there is a sophisticated and potentially hostile or hostile intelligence service. So I think, you know, my own impression that had an impact on the, you know, that workforce that came up during that period. And I think, you know, obviously with us pulling out of Iraq and Afghanistan and now with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think we're all realizing that, you know, writing off the 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 Russians and, and, and their malign influence in the world, I think, was short sighted, uh, certainly in, you know, the, the early 90s when we were all doing that. Not all, but many were doing we're doing that. In terms of looking at the future, um, I think some of the, the real game changers have, are, have already started, and technology is certainly a huge game changer, both in terms of our def- defense and our offense. And uh, I think one of the most obvious uh, offensive weapons we now have, or tools we now have, not weapons, I don't want to use weapons, tools we now have, which we can talk about publicly because everybody knows it, is uh, big data. You know, I remember back in the Cold War, you know, I don't know if this is really true, but you heard stories where people looked at the, you know, photographs of the Politburo and tried to discern who was in power and who wasn't by where they were standing. Uh, Or if there was a photo missing, you know, what happened to that person? Uh, Well, where we went from a case where there was very little data to now there is so much data and we've developed analytical tools, um, automated tools and machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence, so that we can manipulate that data to make analytical conclusions, which when in conjunction with other sources of, of intelligence, uh, SIGINT, human can give us, you know, uh, information and analysis that that we didn't used to have. So we've also seen, of course, the Russians use uh, data in, as, a, as a covert action tool, active measures. We saw that during the 2016 election, where instead of just, you know, hacking the, the, the Hillary campaign emails, they actually weaponized them and put them, you know, through WikiLeaks out, leaked them selectively in that campaign. And I think you know, we saw in the run-up to the uh, Ukrainian invasion, we saw the U.S. government using intelligence in a new way that that we hadn't seen on as as great a scale. The selective 
public release of intelligence information, which I think uh, was pretty effective as a, you know, I'm not an insider anymore, but just watching it as a, as a, you know, a lay observer that I do think we eroded Putin's element of surprise. And, and a lot of that, you know, that satellite imagery is out there in the public. So the media, and I know at FPRI, our scholars are, are just looking at open source satellite imagery. They were, they are now, and they were in the run-up to this. So they were able to see very clearly uh, the deployment of military assets, the Russian military assets, both in advance and during. But but I do think our selective release of intelligence on Russian troop deployments, on what appeared to be Russian deception operations, I think that preempted and maybe set set Putin back on his heels a little bit. You know, I have no intelligence to, I'm not privy to that anymore. But I think the Technology has been a, a great game changer, and it, it has defensively as well. Um, and there have been articles written on what it's done for, you know, uh, human operations. And I just think back to, you know, we had officers travel on alias passports and pretend to be something they're not, sometimes different nationalities, false flag operations. Well, now every passport has a biometric most of the airports you go through, you know, or many are doing iris scans and, you know, there's technology out there doing the kind of alias operations that we did in the past uh, are much harder. Uh, you check into a hotel nowadays, they're scanning your passport with that biometric. They have databases and they often when you check in and you, you know, hand them your, your documents, they will say, oh, uh, Ms. Flynn, are, are you still at such and such address in, you know, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania? Because they, they've all got it before you give it to them. And so uh, if you're going to run operations, either you have to have an exceptional memory, you know, if you're doing it in true name. Uh, but, uh, you know, it is complicated, our, our clandestine operations. And again, I'm not privy to what they're doing now, but I trust there are a lot of clever people at the CIA and they're figuring out a way around this because uh, my own view as human will always, always be relevant. It, um, you can get all that uh, big data analysis. You can get SIGINT. You, you can get, you know, overhead imagery. But the human source can give you the context and tell you if this person you heard on SIGINT is lying or, or what's the story behind the story. What's the motivation? What's the motivation? And, and you know, and read the body language and know the individual. Uh, human gives you something. The other ends don't, I believe. And it's also cheap. It's the cheapest of all the ends. I mean, we're pennies on the dollar compared to building satellites and, and big computer systems. So uh, I guess it's pretty obvious I'm a fan of human, having, having practiced it for three decades of my life. You know, I think a big power rivalry is back. I think China is very important to watch and, uh, and particularly how... China reacts to what Putin's doing because, you know, obvious parallels have been drawn between uh, China and Taiwan and Russia and Ukraine. So, again, I think CIA is I don't think we were ever out of business, but we're back in business in a big way. And I do think there are some parallels to 
the 80s when I began. Raleigh, what was the hardest thing you ever had to do when you were a case officer? Well, I had to do a lot of hard things. As I think about it, you know, operationally, there's some real hard things. I remember when I was in Latin America, there was an active terrorist terrorist presence uh, in in the the city and, and country where I was living and working, and and we were of course always looking for sources within that terrorist organization, and we had one, and he had he he was a relatively new member of this terrorist organization. And this was an organization that as part of their bona fides, you had to go shoot a police officer. And so our, our young source came to our case officer and said, what, you know, they're asking me, I have to go shoot a police officer. Well, those are very hard situations because you, you want to be able to prove the bona fides of, of your source. And, um, and I can't, you know, there are various ways you could probably try to solve that. You know, either you, you break his gun, you know, so it doesn't fire or you aim high or, you know, he gets sick on the day, deathly ill with something really bad like malaria where he can't get out of bed. And as it turned out, the, the, the appointed hour came and the person he was supposed to shoot didn't show up. So it was, you know, for, fortunately, but that, those kind of really, really hard dilemmas. You know, I thought I thought were really hard, but to be perfectly candid, the really really hardest thing I had to do was I was in a country as chief of station where the country was falling apart, and all the Americans, all the official Americans, all but a handful of us were being evacuated, and my kids were little at the time. Uh, my son was in kindergarten, and my daughter was in second grade. And and they had to be evacuated. But I, because I was chief of station, had to stay. And so fortunately, uh, one of our neighbors was a, a foreign service officer and my daughter played with her little girls. And she just came to me and she said, I'll, I'll take your kids for you if, and I'll take them to your relatives if, if you want. And and, you know, they were out. We knew they would be gone for a minimum of a month because that's when, when State Department evacuates, they all go out for a month. So, so I'll never forget the drive to the airport where um, we were going out, we we're going in convoy. And of course, as part of our mission, we were, of course, very active reporting, not only intelligence, but also doing our best to give, you know, street by street assessments of what was happening so that this American convoy could make it to the airport. So I was in in the car with, you know, I think we were two families crammed into one vehicle and I was taking my two children to the airport and my son was on my lap. And as we drove one of the major shopping centers that would normally have been totally lit up uh, because it was, I think it was a Friday night and it was just totally, as we, it would have been totally lit up, it was totally in the dark. I mean, there was almost no one on the street. And as we were passing it, my son in my lap looks out the window and he says to me, oh, mom, cool. Look, a tank. And I'm like thinking, oh, my God, what have I done to my children to put them in this environment, potentially in harm's way? And there were a couple other incidents when I had fear for my children and um, which I won't go into. But 
you know, those are really the hardest things when you have to say, golly, what have I done? And um, so that that was very hard. Yeah, those uh, family separations are really tough. And um, sadly, far too many of our colleagues have had to experience that over the years, particularly Absolutely. in the recent times. Yeah, including, yeah, or, or, or potentially putting your, your family in harm's way. Raleigh, as you know, um, both FPRI and AFIO have um, great relationships with uh, academia, and we have student audiences. Uh, is there anything in particular that you'd like to um, address, um, especially to students today? Oh, yeah, I'd love to. Um, and, you know, I one of the most satisfying things I do is a lot of students contact me, both from uh, Georgetown or some I meet, or they come to me through FPRI, expressing interest in working in intelligence. And, um, and so I, you know, I, I love, love talking to young folks because I think the future of our country depends on good, this next generation, good folks going into government and, and the intelligence community is part of that. And so the first thing I say is keep your nose clean. <laughs> you know, don't, don't get arrested. Think before you do stuff. Uh, and marijuana. Marijuana is still a federal crime. So if you're applying to, you know, to the CIA or the intelligence community, don't do it. Or any federal job. Don't do marijuana. Don't Just don't do drugs. But the other thing I would say is, of course, um, there are so many people who apply to the, to the CIA. And I don't know. You know, it used to be 150000 a year. It may be more. But it's it's a lot. And so, you know, there's a certain percentage of those who are wackos and who are absolutely un, you know, unqualified. Uh, but there are a lot who are qualified. And so I think it's really important to distinguish that not only are you qualified, but you're highly motivated and you're interested uh, because motivation is really important. I think in these jobs, they're really hard jobs. And if you're doing it just on a lark, granted, I did it on a lark when I started, but I didn't stay that way long. I, you know, I, I drank the Kool-Aid, shall we say, once I was in, but, um, but you need to prepare yourself and, uh, of course, read and I say memorize the website. There's nothing worse than applying and asking a question that's answered on the website. Uh, but read. And I think the CIA probably still has a list of books about the CIA and about espionage and intelligence. Read some of those books and make sure you know them and are prepared and can discuss them when you go to your interview. Educate yourself. Certainly, if you're applying to, you know, the DO, but but some of the, the, the analytical um, part of the CIA or, or support, uh, learn a foreign language, travel abroad, particularly for the director of operations or looking for people who have lived and spent time abroad and ideally can can um, uh, speak a foreign language. The, the other thing I'd say is if you're still in college or you're just graduating, I'd say, wait, <laughs> you know, because they rarely hire people directly out of college. They want you to have some, some street time, some common sense, maturity of having worked and lived out in the real world. The exception to that, I would say, by all means, if you have an opportunity to do an internship program, or apply for one of their internship programs, do that. Uh, but the lead time is 
very long. It takes at least nine months, I think, for them to clear you before you can get into an internship. So, so right now, for instance, is the time to apply for a job a year from now. And um, so, so, so start early. Um, those are great. Internships are, are terrific. And uh, it's a chance for you to look at the organization that you're going into and for them to take a look at you. And, and there are a lot of folks who come out of those internships, a high percentage, I suspect, that get hired ultimately. Uh, so, so do do that. And it never hurts to apply, even if you think you might not get it. It's, it's practice. And there are a lot of folks who got turned down the first time they applied and ultimately get hired. It, it happens. So that I'd recommend you do. But, but certainly stay attuned to what's going on in the world. Read, read the Financial Times, read The Economist, uh, stay current in what's going on in the world and, uh, and be able to talk about it. So that, that's what I would say. And, and the other thing I would say is, and I know I sound a little Pollyanna-ish when I say this, but I really think joining the CIA was one of the best decisions of my life. And, um, and it, it just amazes me when I think how sort of accidental it was that I happened to open that page of the newspaper on that day and see that. And uh, you know, it was totally accidental. I, I would probably still be editing books in New York City if I hadn't seen that ad. So, but but it, I, I do think it's, it's, you know, it's a great mission. And, you know, it's government, so there will be, you'll have your days when you, you know, wring your hands and say, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> government drives me crazy. But of all the government uh, agencies, you know, I'm, I'm parochial. I, I think it's the best or one of the best. I agree. <laughs> well, this has been a very interesting and thought-provoking conversation. I want to thank uh, Raleigh Flynn and FPRI for appearing on AFIO Now today. Thank you, Jim. It's been great to be here, and, and thanks. I'll, I'll put a plug. AFIO is a great organization, and I'm proud to be a member. <laughs>